Danielle Schroyer is the author of Boundary Breaking God. She's also a seminary professor. Every, every week I like to, or I try every week to recommend a few books to you. They're in the sermon notes that are in your bulletin as well. And so uh, as we deal with some of these ideas and thoughts uh, in the God Can't sermon series, I take a look at some of those books and see if they might uh, help you out a little bit. I think it's what, what we're talking about is so deeply personal to people that when we talk about who God is or what God is, we fight about these things because we have these previously held notions that are precious to us. Last week, I said something pretty radical in, in the discussion about uh, suffering and, and where is God? Why is God letting this happen to me? If God loves me, then God wouldn't want this to happen to me. And if God can do anything, then God would stop it from happening. But yet it happens. And so a lot of people throughout time have given different explanations for this. And one explanation that we're working out in these sermons is maybe the possibility that omnipotence, the idea that God can do absolutely anything, is actually different than what we think it is. And maybe God can't do some things. Maybe God can't stop evil single-handedly anyway. God can't stop suffering. Well, oof, that's a rough one. What do we do with those things? It's tough because religion, our understanding of God, our relationship with God is deeply personal to each and every one of us. My, my, I have a best friend. His name's Cody. Um, and we still... I mean, we've been best friends from high school. We still talk to each other, send texts to each other at least once a week. We are in each other's lives. Um, Cody and I were raised differently. He was raised Latter-day Saints, LDS, Mormon. I was raised in the Church of the Nazarene, which is a little bit more of a conservative Methodist offshoot. And we were best friends in high school. But there came a night, one night, uh, before graduating uh, senior year, that we had to sit down finally have it out and tell each other why they are wrong about God. It was a good night. <laughs> and he stayed the night at my house, and we went after each other, and we told each other. We were quoting scripture towards each other. Um, we were both deep into our relig religion, deep into our relationship with God, and we just could not handle that we disagreed on this, and we fought and fought and fought all night. And then, or I mean, later in that night, um, after we were angry at each other, after we were tired of fighting, Cody said to me, Rick, for the sake of our friendship, because we love each other so much, let's never talk about religion again. And I was brokenhearted, I was mad, but I loved him. And I said, okay, okay. And I thought I was letting God down. I thought that I was doing the wrong thing. But doing something for the sake of love, I don't think is ever going to let God down. We have these deeply held, have these personal relationships with God, and so when somebody comes and challenges an idea like that, it's hard to hear. It's difficult to hear. My buddy Cody, he, uh, he went on to be a meteorologist and uh, went to college for it and went, was chasing chasing storms in eastern Colorado and Kansas, and he would go out and he would meet with farmers, and uh, farmers would talk to them about the weather. Weather's pretty important to a farmer, and they would, so a farmer asked Cody one time, hey, 
you believe in God? Cody said, yeah. You're a meteorologist, right? Yeah. He's like, then why does God hate me? <laughs> and Cody said, okay, well, what's going on? He says, well, whenever the forecast says rain, I go out to my field, and I look out, and it's raining on everybody else's farm, but it's dry right where I'm at. What am I doing wrong? And Cody said to him, and very scientific-minded, said, well, you're, it's probably not raining on anyone else's farm. You are seeing rain. You can see the rain come down, but it's probably evaporating before it hits the ground. And the farmer said, you're an idiot. What do you know? You're not a farmer, right? And, he, and even though Cody had been studying, and even though, uh, you know, he has a degree in it, and he's out there chasing storms, it's difficult uh, when you challenge people's personally held beliefs. And uh, this is one area where Cody and I can kind of relate. As a young pastor, I'm up here trying to poke and prod and tell you, you know, maybe there's different ways to be thinking about God. Maybe there's different ways to be believing about God. And, uh, and so often, I've heard it several times, the, you know, pastor, I've been believing and thinking about God longer than you've been alive, right? I get that a lot. <laughs> and I understand that, but I want us to kind of play with these ideas about who God is. Maybe, maybe we can find some good news, if not for you, then for people around you. People struggling with these ideas. Maybe there's an avenue to understand how there is suffering in the world and a God of love. Last week we said most of our notions or ideas about God come from Greek philosophy, and this is kind of the big problem, these inconsistent beliefs about what God can and cannot do. And so my suggestion is that we actually take those ideas about God that come from Greek philosophy and we toss them. And let's look straight at Scripture. And what is God of Jesus really refine, or telling us about who God is? But we don't only get our ideas about God from Greek philosophy. We also get them based on what we think we need. This is a critique that a lot of non-believers have of Christians. That we just create a God that we think we need. That we create a God that we want and so we want certain things, and so we just imagine God this sort of thing. That's a pretty valid critique. We got to be, as Christians, be aware of that idea that we're not just creating God into something that we want God to be. The Israelites, in our scripture, do just that very thing. God rescued them from slavery out of Egypt, led them through the Red Sea, led them through the desert, set them up in a fertile land. And when they get set up, the first thing they say that they want is they want a king like other nations have. In 1 Samuel 8, the people rise up and they ask Samuel, give us a king. All the other nations have a king. Appoint us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. This is what they think they need. This is what they think they want. They go on to say a little bit further, our king will judge us and lead us and fight our battles. This is what the people think that they need. God did not decide for them to give them a king. God didn't want them to have a king. That wasn't in the plans. But the people decided this is what we need. We need a ruler. We need somebody that's going to give us laws, tell us what to do. We need somebody that, to judge our disputes. 
We need somebody to fight our battles for us. The people bring this to their high priest, Samuel. Samuel then goes to God and says, God, what should I do? The people want a king. They, what, what, what's going to happen? God says something specific to Samuel, which I think is poignant. He says to Samuel, Samuel, the people have not rejected you. They have rejected me. They want something that I am not. They want a king. They want this particular king. And so God says to Samuel, do it. Do it. Give them what they want. I'm a God that doesn't, can't stop free will. Free, I'm a God of love. He doesn't say this to Samuel. But I'm a God that allows this to happen. I'm a God that can't stop it from happening. Give them a king. Appoint them a king. Samuel then goes back to the people. He says, okay, if you want a king, this is what's going to happen. The king is going to conscript all your sons. The king is going to take all your, wife, all your daughters for concubines. You are going to live and feel like slaves under the king. Is that what you really want? And the people said, yeah, that's what we want. And so Samuel gives them a king. Turns out disastrous, but it's what the people want. I think sometimes when we think about God, we also think about what we think we want, what we think we need. We need a God who is powerful and mighty. We need a God with solutions. We need a God who's going to get things done. We need a God who is going to fight our battles for us. But then, but that's not who God reveals God to be. Then comes Jesus. He's not a God that fights our battles for us. He's not a God that's going to rule over us with a scepter, gives us these defined laws, do this and don't do this. Instead, we have this God who is born to a humble peasant couple, a God who walks with uneducated people in the streets, a God who's not high and mighty in temples or palaces, but a God who is with the low. What a strange king. And then we find out something. We didn't know that this is the kind of God we needed all along. We didn't know what we needed. One of the stories comes up, and, um, and uh, well, let me, let me talk back about Cody for just a minute. Uh, I remember when Cody and I became very best friends. I remember when we became very best friends. We, um, we were in college, and we had been friends, and we, you know, we see each other when we go home, and uh, we were confidants in each other, and we called each other, and we were talking about grad school one day, and we were talking about money, and things were, and, you know, how we're going to get money, and how we're going to you know, move forward in grad school, and so Cody would tell me his decisions and his problems, and, and I would give him my advice. I'd say, hey, well, you can get money here and here and here. You should do this. You should not do that. Definitely don't marry that girl and do this, this, and this. And Cody would get really angry at me, and he was like, I, I know all those things, Rick. I know what I should do. And I'm like, oh, settle down. And then, and then I would tell Cody about my problems and my money, and, and, and we'd talk about relationships, and we'd talk about school, and he was like, Rick, you should do this, 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 this. And, and I was like, Cody, I know all those things. I know that. And then, 
And Cody was like, well, I don't want your advice either. And I was like, well, then why did you call me? And he said, because you're my friend. I just needed a friend. I go, oh, me too. And I remember uh, this moment when Cody and I laughed and we said, we actually had this, the very same SAT score. And we said, I'm not smarter than you. I definitely don't think you're smarter than me. <laughs> we don't need to give each other advice. We just need friendship. We just need friendship. I didn't need advice from Cody. I just needed a friend. I didn't know what I needed out of a, out of a best friend. I think the people didn't know what they needed out of God. And so Jesus comes and shows us a radically different version of God. And we realize, oh, this is what we needed all along. The story that we read earlier is Jesus coming to Mary and Martha after their brother Lazarus had died. And Jesus was not far away. He was just two miles away. Um, but he doesn't arrive to Lazarus' house till four days after he's dead. And the question is, why? You know, what happened? You know, give us some answers here. Jesus never gives them an answer about why he didn't come and and stop Lazarus from dying. There's no answer for that. Jesus shows up, and Martha comes out first, and Martha cries, and she wants this answer. She wants to know, if, why, why didn't you come? If you were here, you could have stopped him from dying. Answer me. She wants a solution. She wants an answer. Mary then comes out of the house, says the same exact thing. If you were here, he wouldn't have died. What is going on? What is your answer? Answer for yourself. Jesus doesn't answer. Doesn't give them a solution. Doesn't give them advice. But when Jesus sees them, he sees them weeping. He sees the other people weeping. And Jesus does this weird and incredible thing. He just weeps with them. Shortest book in the, our shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He wept. He cried. And the Jews around him, some were amazed. Oh my goodness, look at this guy's love for Lazarus. Others asked that question. Why would he be crying? He can do anything. <laughs> Why is he weeping? Why is he crying? Why isn't he getting something done? Why does he pause and weep? I think he weeps because Jesus knows what we need more than we know ourselves. But deep down in our hearts, we kind of know it. That the first thing, those who suffer, what they need first is a fellow sufferer to understand. When we suffer, I think sometimes we cry out for answers. Why did this happen? Where were you? You could have stopped this. I think we cry out for that. And, and I, don't, I don't begrudge anyone for crying out those kinds of questions. I do think that they are expressions of grief. And I think that we know that those who are suffering, the first thing we need is somebody who knows suffering also, who sees us and understands. 
when, um, when uh, Cody and I are good friends, best friends. We don't give each other advice anymore. We're just there with each other. We made that decision a long time ago. Five years ago, Cody was making some bad life choices. He was not sleeping very much, not taking care of his health, and he got a virus in his heart, myocarditis, and it stopped his heart for a little while, thinned down his heart walls to about 10%, and he was dying. And so I rushed in, and I got on an airplane, and I, I went to him, and, and I was just there. I was of no earthly good to this guy. In fact, I'll share it. Like, I, I didn't share this in the first service, but um, when he was slowly coming, coming to, I asked him if there was anything he needed, and, and he was like, can I have some hot tea? And I was like, I'm on it. I'm going to get that for you. And I go around the station, I pour him some hot tea, and I realize, oh, he can't, he can't sip this, he needs a straw. So I go and I get a straw, but I don't put a lid on the hot tea. And as he's leaning forward, he goes to take a sip, and I pour the hot tea all over his shoulder. And I realize I'm no good to this man. <laughs> I'm only here causing more harm. What's wrong with me? There's nothing I could really do for him but he just needed me there. He just needed somebody to be with him. Likewise, one year ago, one year ago yesterday, Clementine was rushed into emergency brain surgery. And, and Cody rushed up to me, and he just hung out with me. He was more good. I mean, he went and got tacos, and so that was good. But he was just with me. In those moments of suffering and grief and difficulty, there's no shortage of people offering advice, you know? And I don't begrudge those people either. It's a way that they're coping with those things. But people, plenty of people had advice on what we should do about money. It had, they had advice about the ways that we should feel about this and how we should grieve. They had, people had advice on, you know, school systems and tons of stuff. I didn't need any of that. I needed somebody that saw my suffering and suffered with me. That is more powerful than any solution or advice that anyone could give. What Jesus reveals about God is that God is not first and foremost a solution maker, a problem-solving machine. First and foremost, God is somebody that suffers with us and sees us, somebody that knows your pain, knows your suffering, so that you can be comforted, so that you will know that you're not alone. And that is more powerful than any other kind of God that we can dream up. That is more powerful than any other kind of God that we can make up as a mighty king and solution maker. Our God fundamentally is a God with us in our pain, in our suffering. A God who sees us. Another story from Scripture to kind of accent this point. There's another miracle that Jesus does. Well, he doesn't, Jesus doesn't even do this miracle. I don't know what happens exactly, but um, Jesus is in a marketplace, and uh, Jairus, the synagogue leader, comes up, and his daughter is sick and dying, and so Jesus, or Jairus goes to Jesus and says, hey, my daughter is sick and dying. Will you please come quickly to heal her? And Jesus said, let's move. Let's do it. So they make their way through the marketplace. In that marketplace is another woman, 
a little bit older, we don't know her age, but for 12 years, she's been dealing with an issue of blood, is the way the scripture says. She's wasted all of her money. She spent all of her money on doctors. She's found no solution because of her situation. She is an outcast of society. She can't enter the temple. She can't be a part of a community of faith. She's probably lost family. But she's heard about Jesus, and he's nearby. And she thinks to herself, if I just go and I just touch his robe, then I know I'll be healed. So in this marketplace, she slinks through the crowd, she sneaks up and just touches the hem of his robe, and immediately she feels the healing. Immediately she feels that she is restored and renewed, and she slinks away from the crowd. That's all she needed, right? She just needed the solution. She just needed the answer. But Jesus stops the crowd. He stops the procession. He says, wait, something just happened. I felt some power move from me but the work is not done yet. There's something more that she needs. Jesus goes and looks through the crowd and, and she comes forward and she is cowering in fear. She thinks she's stolen some sort of power. Jesus is there to show her, no, 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 what you really need is something else. She starts to explain, she starts to tell her story and then Jesus says the words to her, that she really needed. Daughter, daughter, your faith has healed you. Daughter, you are part of a family. Daughter, you are not alone. Daughter, you belong to me. Daughter, I see you and I understand your suffering. It's not enough that we just look for solutions and get things done. Jesus reveals to us that what we really need is comfort in our suffering. We need comfort in our suffering. Now, um, we can't do this for each other perfectly. I don't know what it's like to have my heart stop, so I can't comfort Cody perfectly. I can't be in his shoes perfectly. Um, Cody has not had a child go through brain surgery, and so he can't comfort me perfectly. We can get close. We can get close. What Jesus is saying is that there is one who knows our griefs perfectly. There is one who understands and identifies with absolutely everything you go through. And the one that can perfectly empathize with you is the one that can perfectly comfort you. And this is who our God is the one who truly understands your suffering, the one who can truly bring your comfort. This is the core of who our God is. This is the good news of the gospel, that God is with us. This is our God. Now, there is still work to do, right? It doesn't mean that there's nothing, like we just sit around and kind of mourn with each other. There's still good work to do, and our God does get stuff done, and we're going to talk about that next week, all right? Um, I like to end the sermon with a couple of different, you know, takeaways or action steps. I think the first main thing is, you know, this whole sermon series is, is talking about redefining our understanding of God reworking our understanding of God. Most of the problems of our ideas with God come from 
other philosophies. They don't come from Christianity. So instead of making power and solutions the center of what you think about God is, make love and empathy the center of who God is. If love and empathy is that kind of rock that we can build our theology on, how does that change things? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for you? And then secondly, I, I like that song, Humble King, because it's, you know, if this is who our God is, then that's who we're called to be. We were made in the image of God. If at the center of God's image is empathy and love, suffering with or putting ourselves in each other's shoes, caring for each other, then that's who we're called to be, made in God's image. So practice empathy. Share a place with those who suffer. Empathy is not pity. It is not giving quick little quips. It is not even giving advice. Empathy is being with people, spending time just being there, going to get tacos, spilling hot tea on them. <laughs> this is empathy. This is what we're called to do. Um, a little bit, Cody and I eventually did start talking about God again a little bit later on in life. And, uh, you know, he's going through some tough time and, and eventually he, he left the LDS church and, uh, after some time went by, he asked me, you know, Rick, I think I need a church. I think I need a community. And he was living in Colorado. I was in Idaho at the time. And he was like, well, what, where should I go? What should I do? And I said, Cody, man, you're as smart as me. You don't need my advice. You find your own church. <laughs> God is the God who is with us, the God who doesn't always give advice, doesn't always say why he didn't show up on time, but is the God who suffers with us. And when we come to the table we remember that God who is with us in absolutely everything. In a real physical way, we take the bread, we take the cup, we receive Christ into our bodies to remind ourselves that this is who our God is, the God who is with us.